how do we build communities with healing at the center? How do you build a community that's authentically about the individual and that that the alchemy, the ecosystem of that community is essentially healing. So much of the things that we practice, we assume there's some reason we do it, but there sometimes isn't. So just when someone pushes it, maybe they did push too far. Maybe they did, but now let's have a conversation about where that where that is, because it's not as if everything is working so swimmingly well. Who I am is whoever I am in this moment. All that matters is where I am right now. I've never met a religious person who's not afraid of spirituality. When I have played this one's not just a school or an interesting educational model or whatever. It, it had a soul. Like it had its own entity. It had its own vision, its own rhythm of unfolding. Welcome to the In Search of More podcast. I am your host, Ellie Nash. Join me weekly on my quest for more. More from myself and more from this world. We'll see you on the other side. There we go. Welcome. Welcome, Yochavid. Hi, Ali. I'm standing here with Yochavid Seidoff. Um, we know each other, but from a different lifetime before this evolution of me. I don't know what's happening with you. You look the same. <laughs> <laughs> Plus a few things. <laughs> Plus a few earrings, at least, right? <laughs> okay, so where do we start? We start at, um, I, we'll, I guess we'll start at the end. So... First of all, some of the audience, I guess, knows you because we did a couple of conversations, besides for people who just happen to know each other, but we've done a couple of conversations on this yeah. podcast, but none, you did one about the school, which we're we both involved one, in, Lab Blighters Yeshiva. Yeah, we did one to sort of talk about the ending of the school. Correct. A, a post-mortem, I think we called it. Yes. And then we did another one about a project... Um, we put a lot less into, but is actually living on now. Yechad Garai Kindness Award. Yeah, <laughs> so. yeah. Beautiful. So they just had their third annual event. Yeah, which was, uh, it was nice. Lanachas, yeah. yeah, that was great. So we did one of uh, one of each of those, but not so much about you. So we'll get into your story a little bit. At the moment, you're building a community, so to speak. Yeah, it's interesting because I I feel like part of the deprogramming of the last few years has been to remove the focus on on the doing mm -hmm. and to cultivate a lot more being mm. so it's interesting to kind of go directly into into the doing like there's a part of me that's like wait one second wait two. <laughs> <laughs> um but yeah i am building a, a okay so let's not start there we'll get there naturally where where would you have started had i gone more of the being or doing more of the being versus the being. Mm. Maybe I would have just asked, like, how are you? <laughs> um, I haven't been asked that in a while. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> with the caveat of, like, what does that even mean to be asked how are you and to really mean it? I'll start. How are you, Ellie? Oh, I thought you were asking me that. You wanted to say that's what I would have asked. No, when we get a female host, they'll start interviews with how are you. <laughs> so how am I? Yeah, let me try that. Yeah, I think good. I, you know something? I, I guess I'm also, maybe I'm interested in your evolution because I'm interested in my own. Mm. So, um, meaning I feel like I've been on one also. Yeah. Right? The last yeah. few years, like when we, when we left off, say Lamplighters was what, COVID is when it imploded? Yeah. Tw well, it 2020? Ended, ended June 2020, yeah. 
Okay, yeah. so we can blame it on COVID. Everything was great up until COVID mm. happened. <laughs> <laughs> and then an unfortunate casualty of COVID. Look how I didn't answer the question of how I am. Wow. So, how are you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's interesting to talk about evolution um, and to answer that question because I, I can't look at you and not see all the history between us, in a sense. Oh, the lamplighters and... Not just the lamplighters, but just, like, you as a person and, like, watching your unfolding. Right. Yeah. You were the first person to push me to give a public speak, yeah. speech. Yeah. Yeah. Indeed. Yeah. I remember that. Yeah. I remember exactly where I was sitting when I wrote that email right. to you. And now they can't shut me up. <laughs> <laughs> now they can't shut me up. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I... I am good in the sense that life is becoming more and more and more conscious for me, which means there's more and more and more stuff that's coming up always. There's never a shortage of stuff. There's never a shortage of stuff. And so the, it's a space of almost perpetual movement around being with what's happening inside. And so it feels like there was so much more absencing and numbing way back. And now there's like very little place to run and hide. So yeah. is what you're saying that, let's say in the previous version of you, Lamplighters, right, that era of and what you created was amazing, right? A school that, despite the fact that it no longer exists today, did educate many people, but it also, I think, successfully changed the conversation, at least in the Chabad community, around what is possible with education. Yeah. Despite the fact it's something amazing, you're saying that you are coming from an energy of doing, which is also an energy of escaping. If I'm... You know, when, when I started Lamp Leaders, there was... The connection was deeply to this vision and this dream that I was almost obsessed about, but not so much connection to myself, like my own story, my own healing, my own traumas, my own why, like what was the fixation almost to the point where very little boundaries, very little capacity to say no, almost complete burnout. And when Lamplighters closed, and it was a, a tremendously challenging point in my life, my identity shifted, my career. And at the same time, you know, <clears throat> I, I think I've shared this with you, but the day that we were liquidating the assets for Lamplighters, which I was so nervous about, all this stuff that we had accumulated over years, that we had fundraised to buy, yeah all the manipulatives and the books and the materials. For me, liquidating the assets meant a real kind of goodbye, like it was final. And I was sitting in the emergency room with my daughter, uh, you know, um, in the psychiatric unit. And so there was a tsunami of grief in my life, not just about this baby, I mean, it's a baby. Um, that had to close, but also just what is what is real in my life? Like what, like who am I? 
like the, the echo of the question, who am I? And being in that space of really having to sit with myself in that, like who am I? If you take away all the stuff and the big accomplishment, and Lamplighters is such a gorgeous accomplishment that I'm so deeply proud of. If you take that all away, like what, what is here? Who am I? And so a big part of the last few years has been sitting with that and coming slowly over and over again, learning over and over again that who I am is whoever I am in this moment. All that matters is where I am right now. And that for me is much more about connecting to like my being state. Not about so much about my doing state. Like what do I do now? I do lots of really interesting, beautiful things, but I'm more concerned about like who I am is is uh, one way of measuring that for someone who hasn't gone through that experience of when lamplighters disip- when lamplighters was going through that process of liquidating they weren't liquidating just themselves it was a part of you that was being lost whereas yeah. now those things that you're doing yes you're doing them but if they weren't there you would still exist yeah I'll offer like an example mm-hmm. so when lamplighters closed it was not just, you know, incredibly sad and, and there was a lot of grief. And I also felt like I went through like a public sort of dethroning in a certain <laughs> right. way, yeah. Um, but I had a lot of shame and I felt like I, I screwed up somehow or I could have done it differently and it was really, really hard for me. And I, I think it was the first time I sat with ayahuasca and the spirit of Lamplighters came to me. Now, I, I felt very, very strongly since day one that Lamplighters was not just a school or an interesting educational model or whatever. It, it had a soul. Like it had its own entity. It had its own vision, its own rhythm of unfolding. And I felt, as one of the founders, that I could feel the soul of the school. And so in the medicine space, the soul, the spirit, the, the substance of lamplighters came to me. And I said to it, I said, if you're here to like bring me more shame and, and like remind me of all the ways in which I wasn't enough, like you're not invited anymore. And in that moment, I think I sort of cut myself off from the life force of, of lamplighters. And recently, very recently, I'm talking about in the last few weeks, coming back into this space of, because I, I also repressed. In Search More podcast has a sponsor, officially, okclarity.com is the place for anyone in the Jewish community, whether you're from, not from, religious, not religious, all that's cool to find a therapist, psychiatrist, coach, nutritionist, anyone in the wellness space. So this ad is both for those people looking for any of the above. Find the right one. You can go on their website, scroll through their choices. If you don't find someone, they have a concierge service. Reach out to them, describe the issue, and they will help you. I've recommended many people their platform and have only heard good things. If you're a wellness professional, I also recommend joining the directory. They will get you business if you're good at what you do. Okay, Clarity also has an amazing WhatsApp status. Check them out there. 
We'll post a link, our website, WhatsApp, and our emails, and wherever you're watching this in the show notes. Check him out and let him know the In Search of More podcast sent you. Like myself as a founder, as an entrepreneur, as a renegade, as a rabble rouser, as I'm like, I'm not touching that part of me right now. Like that part of me is burnt and tired and sad. Well, that part of me is me. And so the past few weeks in really thinking about this community that we're building, I've been feeling like, can I, can I really step back into that? And coming to this place of understanding that there's a part of me that doesn't want to betray lamplighters, that's afraid of, of betraying the spirit of lamplighters, and that I need to welcome that part back. Like, I exiled it. And I need to welcome it back. What do you mean by betraying the spirit of lamplighters? How can I how can I start something new when I invested so much into something so beautiful and it didn't work out? It's like it almost feels like. Let me let me pause for a second. It would feel like I'm betraying the spirit of lamplighters if I started something new without honoring that that impulse will still live on in something new. Like when I, when I said, right, like when I said to lamplighters, like you're not welcome here, it was like I exiled that part of me that holds the innovative spark. Right. Oh, I understand. You understand? Yeah, it wasn't just lamplighters you pushed away. You pushed away the part of you that created lamp yeah letters. so when you asked me like it's part of me that was you know shut down or liquidated it's like yeah there was a part of me that was shut down and liquidated that i'm only now starting to re-engage from a very different place right do you feel like it carries the same the same risk because i don't look at lamplighters as a failure i mean despite the fact that i put a lot of time and money into it. I don't, when I look back at the original reason I invested in lamplighters, yeah. I felt like success, mission fulfilled. Yeah, I don't think it was a failure either. I just wish it was still around. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it is just a many <laughs> I, I wish, look, I, I wish that there was school, still a school in Crown Heights that offered that education. I, I, I wish it was still around. Yeah. Right. No, I understand that. Yeah. Don't miss my job. <laughs> yeah, I don't miss some of it either. Honest, so. Yeah. That's hard at the end. Yeah, it was. It was. But I, I learned something about myself there as, as well. What? Um, a is about failure and success, right? It's not, it's not as clear cut as um, one may look at it. Like when I went into it, it was saying, hey, here's a school. I knew it was risky. Like I knew that going in, that it was something that was attempting to do the impossible, to create a school like this yeah. in a community like that. And that's why it was interesting. And I actually used it for years as an example of, I would say I'm conservative in business, but I'm aggressive in charity. <laughs> <laughs> mm. So it was something that 
I, I took a risk on and yeah, take a risk on something that lives for 10 years. That's a success in that way. The other part is that it, by the time Lamplighters closed, there were already so many others that had done it in their, in their way. And yes, it would be great if it still lived on, but at what price would it still, would it still have lived on without me attached to it? I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. I think there was a lot of, a lot of us along the way that were so invested and that was beautiful. And there was, there was another side to that investment. And it's, it's kind of like a catch 22. Like it was one of the hardest moments of my life, like that period. And it was the best thing that ever happened to me. The fact that in some way, right? Like the divine design, the fact that the school closed and that portal of having to reassess and come come to terms with my self-worth being something outside of what I do in this world and just my healing journey since then I, I I'm so I feel so blessed right it found it sounds like there's two parts to the evolution of letting go of lamplighters one is I am not lamplighters yeah like I'm something but also I'm not not lamplighters yeah oh, well said hmm I mean, I am Yochavet, and Yochavet holds lamplighters. And lamplighters is is reforming itself in some sort of way. Right. Yeah. So, and then here's an opportunity with a new community to... Because you know, I think some of what went wrong with lamplighters... I'll finish that question in a second. But some of what went wrong with lamplighters was the, the stubbornness to the original vision. Mm. Not the vision. That would have been fine. You know, Jeff Bezos has a quote. Uh, says He says... We have to be stubborn on the vision and flexible on the details. Mm. And Lamplighters was a little stubborn on the details. <laughs> a little bit. Like, it had to look like this. And I was like, no, it's not going to survive looking like that. Like, you yeah. cannot build a school the way you want it and have a shortfall of $15,000. Yeah. Huh. So it's not, there was lots of not work, possible. Yeah. There were things that weren't going to... Um, weren't going to... Work. Work. Yeah. But the overall vision could have existed if there wasn't as much um almost control on the details like the you know, it wasn't from one person i think it was from all of us that there was something that there was like an energy like we're fighting against something and we needed to to yeah. bring that energy yeah. in order for it yeah. to continue to exist yeah. yeah there was definitely some of that right. for sure yeah. we had to push out this noise and that noise and that yeah. noise and then yeah the yeah. noise from and, god also and some and the noise from god <laughs> Yeah, God was trying to speak to us this whole time and still listen. Yeah, and it had to happen that way. Maybe. <laughs> Maybe we can we'll probably still it. argue about this. Right. <laughs> like, but oh. in terms of the evolution of this new, um, this new community, to bring that in in a way that's has all the beauty of it without that strong attachment. Well, and, I think that. You know, if I think if I think about myself as a, as a person, my my sort of arc, um, I'm somebody who always has had of struggle is the right word, but a particular relationship with belonging. It's been challenging for me in certain ways, and and yet I feel like there's something in me that can generate a feeling of belonging in others, <laughs> and probably because of my own belonging stuff and 
I've always been passionate about community and people coming together and storytelling and spiritual ecstasy and depth and emotional depth and connection and authenticity and all these things that showed up in many different ways in my life. And I think Lampleaders was less about an educational model for me always. It was more about how do we build communities with healing at the center? How do you build a community that's authentically about the individual and that that the alchemy, the ecosystem of that community is essentially healing. And part of- Can you define this word healing a little bit? Is it, is it therapy? Is it something different than? Um, I think healing can be therapeutic. Um, I think healing is about shedding the layers and being connected to self and really being with what is and having spaciousness and presence. So a, a community where the individual doesn't get lost. That's a way to say it. That's a way to say it. I and feel like that's the struggle. Meaning if you take like the, um, let's take the, like the American value system, mm -hmm. definitely prides the individual. I don't know what's going on now, right? There's been some debate over the American value system. So I'm not talking about 2023 American value system, but you know. If you said American values in 1995 or something, okay, right? I won't even pick a time when it was a Republican <laughs> president, right? 1995, we would understand that that independence and the value of the individual, and that's a core American value. If you take something like, I don't know, Islam, they don't pretend to value the right. individual. It's not. They won't. I don't think any Islamic person would be offended if I, if I say that it's community and submission to the community. And that is the highest ordeal. I think Judaism, in theory, tries to combine both. A religion that prides itself on you know, community and society, but at the same point in time, a single life is a whole world. Concepts like that. Right. But somewhere it gets lost yeah. along the way. And is, is that what you're saying when you say a community around, around healing? Because the, the word confused me a little bit. Yeah, I that. think that's an aspect. And what it brings up for me is that we can get obsessed with hyper-individuation, like the individual, but we can get obsessed with the individual to the point where we all feel separate. So I'm so connected to my individuality that I ultimately feel so alone and separate. But I feel like the way we hold both to be an individual and community is if we're aware that we're interconnected. When you actually know that you're part of something bigger, then that allows us to feel like we're part of something bigger, and that right that opens up so much for us. And how do we, how do we maintain the individual aspect in that in, space? In that space, yeah. I think when you when you feel that you matter, when your voice is heard, when you're witnessed in your in your process, when you can contribute when you're a part of something, when your life has meaning, when people aren't trying to shut you up or tell you that your actions aren't meaningful or that you don't count. Right. When we talk about story, I, th I, th I think that's one way of saying it, right? That say, 
Okay, us two are here, right? Does my story up until this moment matter? Up until this, is any difference? Like now we're part of a community. Is there something, does it influence this thing, this space, this community, this group in some way, or does all of that have to get shed and lost just because I join? Okay. Yes. Is there a sense that my wholeness somehow adds to the wholeness of the collective? Right. I'm... Maybe that's where uh, the Balchuva movement got it wrong. Uh, say more. It, it felt like the worst thing you can tell a Balchuva. Maybe not all of them. A Balchuva, right? So someone who, like my parents, who decided to become religious and join the Chabad movement was that, oh, I, you're a, you did that, right? You, you actually are a Balchuva. You're actually someone who mm. wasn't at some point. And it's like, how did you know? Did it, was I doing something right, wrong right. that you, like can, something gave it that away. you can tell? Right, right, right. Right. Was that, was that everyone? That was most. I mean, I surely felt that as a kid. I had to like hide that, that part of me that would give away that I wasn't, I, w- I wasn't so good at hiding it though. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> <laughs> like, what gave it away? Dark skin and a name, <laughs> Elham. <laughs> there was no hiding. Right. Um, yeah, belonging is a big one. And how we, how we create belonging I don't see how we do it without really honoring the self and giving a container for people to feel like they matter. And is there, within this, right, the balance of the individual and the the community is, I'm going to use the word religion, I don't necessarily mean it's religion, God, spirituality, is that a necessary component, an added component, is that, where does that fit in into this equation? Meaning in your community, that's, that's well, a component. I want to say our community is evolving. So I want to like, it's like a right. work in progress that's very much rooted, I think, in, in our journeys. Um, I don't see how we do any sort of healing work or create connection without inviting the divine. Because if I'm talking about like how we're all interconnected, like that's the, that's the juice, you know. Right. That's the juice, and you know, part of part of my evolution. If we're using this is the word that we're using today, <laughs> part of my story since Lamplaters is um, my own healing work, and really like a, like a lot of therapy, and and at some point, um, different training, coaching training programs. Um, focus on Jewish meditation and studying that, and coming ag- across someone named Thomas Hubel, who's one of the world's experts on collective trauma, who's developed a model that combines mystical teachings, psychology, and somatic wisdom in healing trauma. And I'm about, just about done with a two-year training that I've been in with him and about 400 people from across the world. And for me, going through this training, which is incredibly intense and moving and rich and evocative and very hard and so beautiful, is exactly this. It's that triangle of seeing individuals share their stories, witness them, connect, be with in the here and now in their being with difficult, hard parts of themselves, 
in a place, in a collective, where they are being witnessed and held and seen and not judged, but just loved. And you just feel God in that space. Like it's a temple, it's a freaking temple. And, and it's like that triangle of myself being witnessed in communion by another, I feel like that's the recipe to invite deep spirituality. Like, right, it's almost like you don't need to do it. As soon as you try to bridge that gap, the only way it's going to happen. Yeah, there's, if, there's, that's, that's what I'm saying. Sorry, the being and doing. There's nothing to do. To authentically be in whatever I am right now in this moment invites God. And I guess by bringing that example, you've excluded the idea of religion from that. Like that's not a necessary component because you're saying there's 400 people. I'm sure not of the same. Well, this this particular training happens to be extremely spiritually minded. I I say that, yeah, it's people from all kinds of backgrounds. Right. And nevertheless, there's a sense of the divine. There. And in some ways, actually, I feel more comfortable talking about God, and I hear more talk about God there than I do in religious circles. <laughs> of course. You know, there's no, it's not taboo to talk about the divine. Um, there's plenty of religious trauma in this space, but the existence and the, the felt sense of God, it, it feels like it's a given. And it's actually really freeing. <laughs> it's really freeing. It's funny, it's funny you say that. It's not taboo to talk about the divine. Yeah. Because it is, it is for sure. Yeah, there's I've never met a religious person who's not afraid of spirituality. Ah. Uh, say more? I think it goes hand in hand. I think that's it, I'm I'm not putting down religion mm. necessarily. I'm not saying it from that perspective. I'm saying that the um that maybe the art is to somehow bridge the two, not that it goes naturally together. Yeah. Well, it's interesting cuz I I definitely think there's something about ritual, you know? Um I have a, a dear friend that I've met in this training, and she's always saying how she was she was raised without ritual, and how she feels her life is missing so many anchor points because of that. And and so ritual and and practice does act, I think, as some sort of hook, you know? How sure. You, you're right. Integration of of it. So there is a place religion, spiritual practice, ritual for sure. Um, well, you can have religion that's completely devoid of God. Well, I, I, think, <laughs> I think even more so, not that you could have that that is the risk. Right. Meaning? And is there, it's, I think it's a risk that they took, that they were willing to take. Right. Yeah. Right, and that's what I think we're, um, we're not being honest enough about, is that, you know, I'm, I'm wrestling with this with my own children, is what sort of school to put them into. And You don't want to start one? What? You don't want to start one? <laughs> <laughs> I, there's, um, there's a lot of trauma there. <laughs> but actually, I'm not joking. Every time I think about it, and there have been some conversations recently, because there is, I don't want to say an opportunity to start one, but an opportunity to get very involved with influencing one yeah. in a direction that could possibly be helpful towards my family and to others, there is definitely some, <laughs> some trauma associated with it, which it shouldn't be because A, it was a success and B, it was, um, like if anything, I'm better equipped. I learned something from it, but maybe I need to drink a little more ayahuasca. <laughs> so, <laughs> but that, that being said, what I'm, what I'm looking at with my children is, okay, I can kind of do one of two things and they both have risks. It's not a pro or con. Mm -hmm. 
there's not a there's not one is good and one is bad. This is where I see it. You tell me if I'm wrong. Is one is I could introduce them to, let's say, a, a very Jewish school with all of the ritual and all of the practice, but then run the risk of them having all of those details right. and then having to somehow infuse God into this down the road when right. they already know it. Right. And the other is to make it much easier for them to infuse God into these practices later on because it'll be introduced kind of together in a way that they can accept it together, but then not know the rituals. Like I quite like the fact that as um I don't know, growing spiritually, I have a lot of this Jewish yeah. language yeah. and this Jewish heritage to tap into, and I find it yeah. very helpful. But that doesn't mean it was always helpful. There were times yeah. where it was quite the opposite. And maybe the way I would kind of put a, a, like a, a bow on this point is in recovery when I was sponsoring someone. So the recovery, the central principle of the 12 steps of recovery is that this is a program for people who have not found healing and the only way they're going to is through a spiritual program. So if you could find healing through a therapist, then God bless you. But kind of the last, like the, the last door on the block is this one after you've tried all the others. Right. But this one requires a spiritual program. And if you told me here was a guy who was struggling with addiction and I was going to sponsor, I was, you know, work on help bringing him into the spiritual program. If you told me he grew up religious, didn't matter which, if he grew up with religious ritual, I would take a deep breath. I was like, wow, <laughs> this is going to be a lot There's tougher. There's some deprogramming that's going to Right, there's yeah. going to be a lot of work. Man, I wish I had the answer to that question because I'm struggling <laughs> with my own kids about this. Like, what, like, what is the recipe that kids need so that as adults, they're conscious, God-loving, have Judaism in their life, have a healthy relationship with ritual, feel proud of their Judaism. Like what? And I, I don't know. You know, you know there was. I don't know. We used to talk about this, but um, it was just said as a story. Maybe there's much more. It obviously has much more meaning. But there was a whole argument of whether to put the oral Torah into writing. Mm. Right. It was this. There was a part of the Torah that was written, and the rest was oral. And at some point in time, rabbis said, okay, we got it, we, we must, because otherwise it's going to get lost. But what do you mean we must? Why wasn't it done before if it was such a good thing to do? It's because they understood that there's a risk. I'm not sure what that is, what that risk was. Well, I think it points to Maybe the power it's this. of transmission. Like I think at some point the cost-benefit was like there's something so powerful in transmission and learning from your elders and being part of the conversation. And then probably when there was the, the fear arose, I don't know if they got afraid in those days, maybe they didn't get afraid. <laughs> but let's say even spiritual people get afraid um, that they might lose something by continuing this generational transmittive activity, then they probably came to write it. But I think the fact that for so many generations it wasn't really like what you were saying. Like there was space for us to actually like tell our stories and talk about it and share and learn something from your elders. Right. I think it was possible that they were worried. They they were obviously saying we're going to lose something if we write it, right. but if we don't write it, we're going to lose everything. Right. So it's worth it to write it, but not because writing it was a good thing. You know, I've thought about one of the things that have given me an appreciation for ritual. Mm. 
like my Shabbos is much different now, the, fr- the Friday night and the way I conduct it because of my because of what I've seen in ayahuasca ceremonies, actually. Really? Like the, yeah, the ritual and the, the sacredness yeah. around that. And um, sacred is not a re- religious word, right? Doesn't mean it was religious. <laughs> Just there's a certain um, quality to it yeah. in the way you're prepared before and the way you eat. And then when, when they come in and the language that's used and uh, small things, right? Where... I, for example, I know one person I've worked with, it's a shaman. He, he'll always make sure the glass he he serves in is is nice. It's not going to be a plastic cup or something like that. It'll be a oftentimes like there are times where it's been a kiddish cup because that yeah. was yeah. something that he felt was okay, more like the most appropriate thing he has. But it would never be some yeah. standard glass. And I thought. That's one aspect of it. Besides a mat that's placed and different things that are said and clothing that's worn, there's a certain um, r- certain rituals that are practiced in order to connote the reverence, the sacredness of whatever we're about to embark on. And I thought, oh, how cool! Like this is some of what we're doing with sh- with the Shabbos. But I think what happens sometimes is if I was trying to describe this ceremony to you, and I said, oh, he uses a silver cup. And he sits cross-legged and he makes sure to sit in the center of the room and he puts this here and he says that. And then if you can start obsessing over the details, mm. was the cup big enough? Was it not? Was You can get all lost in that versus what I think you we want to ask us, but why? Yeah. Like what, Meaning it wasn't about, it's not about the thing as much as it is the intention behind yeah. that thing. It's interesting that you're raising this because it's connected for me with the oral law and the writing of the oral law. Um, I teach now fairly regularly. I teach very regularly. And during Sphira, the weeks between Pesach and Shavuos, Passover and, and the receiving of the Torah, I was teaching a particular piece on Rabbi Akiva. It's a, it's a fascinating sicha that I kind of did my own little twist around, very connected mm-hmm. to healing. And there's this idea that because Reikiva came from converts and he really struggled with like an imposter syndrome in a sense, and he had to redefine his sense of self, he was the one ultimately who becomes the pillar for the oral law. Because the oral law is all about nuance. We would never learn nuance without the oral law. And so only somebody who's really had to re-examine and redefine their identity understands nuance in that sense like what it means to really like dig deep and have to feel out the details and the whole consciousness of the oral law is exactly that it matters the details matter but where we get lost is like which details right. really like what you're saying and what do they matter for and what do they matter for and then at what point do we say like we have this code that's so sacred and so important and yet also, like, my sense of self matters, too. You know, like, when you, when you police women to the point that you are objectifying them and you're staring at the length of their skirts. That's not very modest. That might be the, like, the nuance of the law, but that's not at all about what the law wants. Or right, the t- it strips right? out the spirit and the process. Right, and it strips out the sense of self and all of that. So it matters, but... What is the it? And who gets to decide? And, 
And I think this is also connected to the healing is like, am I connected with myself? Like, do I know what matters for me? So if it wasn't transmitted the way it is, right, written, so how how would it have been? What was the What was the alternative? What was the right way to get this? What was happening back then? Well, up until then, it was, it literally was transmitted generations, generation. Right, and so I wasn't going to give you and a... And there was the shamans. They held the secrets. Yeah, like, right. they knew. Right. Right, meaning... If... Like, I'm not going to write down Shabbos for you. That would be a little risky to just put it here. Here's the pamphlet of Shabbos. Go do this. Like, they might totally screw it up. Come. Experience it with me, mm. and then you'll know. And then you'll feel. And then yeah, and then you'll understand why I chose to have mm. two loaves of bread, or maybe you know, for what I was looking for that evening, I went to the full twelve or fourteen, yeah. or you know, whatever different different customs used for for different reasons. But um, the risk of just putting in writing is almost like, okay, this is how I do it. Good, like let me check check down that that list. It. Um, makes me think of the word um, ineffable, you know, which is we can't put words to it. Yeah. And then we put two words to it. We F it up. Yeah, ineffable. <laughs> <laughs> it's totally effable now that we put words to it. Yeah, so. and it's static and boring. It runs a risk of it. Yeah. It runs a risk of it. Yeah. I'm, I'm actually going after this conversation. I'm going to look into that more. Like what are some of the reasons why why we called it the oral law. We still call yeah. it the oral law. Yeah. Right? And the oral Torah, actually. The oral yeah. Torah. Like, what was, what was the risk? What were they worried about putting into writing? Put into writing. Yeah. And are we living that risk? Yeah. And how do we continue to avoid that risk? And how do we honor the innovative spark in a world that is writing it down? <laughs> you know? Right. I mean, I think about the work that I'm drawn to. I've done a lot of uh, work in, in gender leadership since the school closed and in the Orthodox community specifically. Um, I, I led a research project for over a year studying, understanding Orthodox Jewish leadership, specifically women, and spoke to hundreds of women from across the spectrum of the community who are in leadership. And I'm, I'm just very interested in the topic. And what... I wonder why. I wonder why. <laughs> and... I recognize this part of myself because, you know, uh, my husband and I, Yessi and I, we started, you know, we're, we're founding this community together. And um, last Yom Kippur, well, Rosh Hashanah, I should say, um, Chabad of Atlanta hired me to be their scholar in residence. Cool. Yeah, yeah, which so. was like, they felt like, you know, <laughs> it was pretty like avant-garde of them. It was an amazing experience. I ran the learner service. And it was a very, very powerful experience for me. Um, I love to teach. I love to connect. And it was just, it was a big turning point for me. And I was sharing this experience with some of my students, my friends. And they said, would you do something like that for Yom Kippur? And I said, yeah. So we had a meeting for Yom Kippur where it was an Orthodox minion, a Chabad minion, but I was holding the space. I was standing in the front. I was sharing Torah. I was leading meditations. You would call me a rabbi if I wasn't a woman. <laughs> <laughs> and um, and I, 
I know that there's millions of places where that wouldn't be innovative, where that's just, that's com it would be completely normal for a woman to stand up in front of a community during prayer and during ritual and be the one who's teaching and holding the space. But I love that I get to do it in a place where it's not. <laughs> so you kind of want it to continue to be. Yeah, so this is like something I'm grappling with. Like, Yochavid, why do I have, I don't, I don't have to do it in Crown Heights. Like, right. But no, I actually want to. I, I, I want to be in work that is pushing the boundaries just a bit. That's where it's in that tension. It's like in the written and the oral, <laughs> in the oral space, right? And um, we've had the mini now for a number of months, and it's really beautiful. And it feels traditional, and it feels familiar, and it feels just different enough that like, I think it creates a pause. And how do you make sh uh, how do you ensure that it doesn't push too far? What's the check on? What's so the check, on you? the check, it's there's a mechitza, and the chazan is is a man. So the yasi usually my husband usually right. is the one who leads the davening, um, and I sit behind the mechitza, and that feels like that feels right, like that feels good. Feels like that's the the check. There's still segregation right. of the sexes. So. Right. That's kind of the, it's segregation, but not relegated to the right. The back of the room. Right. And you know, the, the first time we had the Minion in Crown Heights for Yom Kippur, and, and it, was, it was really emotional. I felt like I was, you know, my, my great-grandfather was a rabbi of a shul in Tehran, in Iran. And I really felt like I was channeling him and that he was really present with me. And, you know, standing there, the first time, like, I spoke in front of, it was really packed. I think we had, like, 60, 70 people. Um, and, you know, standing there, standing in a place that in our community is typically held by a man, and looking at the woman and just seeing, feeling what it is for the woman to see a sister standing, sharing Torah, holding space, and then looking at the men's section and seeing and feeling to what it is for the men to see a woman standing there and sharing and holding space. And in that, in that moment, I felt like there was something so healing happening. Something really important was melting. And I'm not, I'm not saying this is the model that it has to be or that I'm holding the stake for this. But like, right, if you go to it has to be, then you're becoming... Exactly. Right. That, I'm not dogmatic, but like... Ah, there's something happening here, and it's really beautiful, and I love to be a part of it. I love to be a part of it. Is is the reason um, it isn't traditionally practiced? Is that a law that was there, or just it, the way I it mean, kind look, of evolved over is, time? There, there are laws around female spiritual leadership, um, and the way that shows up practically is maybe women don't get rabbinic degrees or they're not heading um, synagogues or in many orthodox communities they're not even sitting on school boards right so you have you know shoals and schools who don't have women on their boards and they will find a halachic backing, backing for this right just like there's halachic backing for you know in some orthodox communities they'll remove the women completely from like any images Correct. Right. And Correct. others, rabbis, find it okay. So it's not like there's 
a hard and fast rule you're saying correct across everything yeah. there's different yeah there are different people who can come to the same conclusion with jewish ritual law jewish law as their backing yeah and then is it about the law or is it about something else I don't know. The, I, I guess the problem is that once you start pushing it too far, then you end up with whatever anyone wants, right? Yeah, yeah. So there is, there is something. Maybe it, it's certainly about the spirit of the law. Like there was something. There was something that was intended. Therefore, you know, there's the in in the Torah. There's a law about not taking. Um, what do you call it when you loan someone money and you take a Ribis? collateral? No, collateral. Oh, so, so so someone loaned money to someone and they say, okay, I'm going to take, I don't know, whatever. I'll, I'll take your pot as collateral. Make sure your watch is collateral. So if someone loans money to a widow, not to take it as collateral. Mm. Not take any collateral, just, just loan. Just do a straight loan. Um, but I, the question comes up, what if the widow is wealthy? Okay. Right. So is the law the law or is the spirit of the law that has to be followed? Right. And then maybe the fact that it uses a widow, then it's saying anyone who's impoverished would be in the same situation. Right. So it becomes, even though there's a very, the words say a certain thing, we can get into this debate over, did you mean the spirit? Did you mean the words? Right. Did you mean the spirit? But we still follow the words. Is it the right. silver cup? Is it not? Right. Right. <laughs> right. right. You yeah. can get into this. And that's. Right. So it makes some of it fun. If we debate over this, we maybe get into less trouble in other areas. Of our <laughs> We're life. avoiding other conversations. <laughs> or avoiding other problems sometimes also. Yeah, exactly. Right. 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 But certainly avoiding other conversations, <laughs> that's for sure. Yeah. But I, I think what it certainly does, which which I like, which is some of what I liked about lamplighters, is so much of the things that we practice, we assume there's some reason we do it. But there sometimes isn't. So just when someone pushes it, maybe they did push too far. Maybe they did. But now let's have a conversation about yeah. where that, yeah, where that is, because it's not as if everything is working so swimmingly well. Yeah, and and one conversation is is women's leadership. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, for a lot of women, it definitely is. Right. I mean, you yeah. mentioned at some point in this conversation that you were in a um, psychiatric ward, right? At some point. I mean, I don't know if you mentioned the. The specifics I don't want to share. My child, yeah. Right. So those kind of experiences could put a lot of things into into question very very quickly. Yeah. Yeah, I wouldn't wish it on anyone. Right. I remember you were really helpful to me at that Thank time. You. I, I appreciate that deeply. Thank you. Yeah. I remember when we were going through that, I was talking to somebody who um whose child had had attempted older than my than my child and i reached out for support and she said you know if your child has like cancer or you know there's there's some sort of physical ailment everyone rallies together understandably of course and is praying for your child and is making you dinner and all of these things but but when there's an invisible illness, when our child is suffering from mental illness, most families don't know. Most families don't share. And and I remember like at that time, when people would come to me like, how, how, how are you? How are you? How, how is it since Lamplighter is closed? You know, I started to hate that question. And 
what I felt like I couldn't really say was like, it was like, I'm in this whole other place with my child, you know, that is so much, so much harder um, than an organization. And why did you feel like you couldn't say that? Well, first, I think there's just a, there's a, there's an interesting thing around like what's mine to share, and I still feel that. Um, there's parts of it that are my story as a mother, but there's parts of it that are, are not mine to share. Right, I wrestle with that a lot. Yeah. yeah. So you know, I still I still um, have. I mean, you can probably hear it in my voice. Like I'm still like unsure. Um, and I believe at the right time, this this child of mine, who's incredible, will find a, an opportunity to share. Um, so there's a bit of that, like what's mine to share. And I did have a, a a strong sense of support, thank God. But it's like it's hard to talk about. Right. It's hard to talk about. It's hard to talk about. I don't I don't know if it's stigma per se. It's just really, really hard to talk about. Is it hard to talk about because you feel not because it's emotional? So you seem okay talking about emotional things. Is it hard to talk about because you're concerned about being misunderstood? No, it's it's emotional. Just because because it is emotional, it's emotional right? Yeah, it's emotional. Okay, that. Yeah, and it's um, I don't. I don't know, I'm going to make a blanket statement. I don't know if a parent of a child who's had mental health struggles doesn't at some point go through a process of like, how am I to blame here? Like, what could I have done differently? Like, what? And, you know, to, to know that your child is suffering and, and to have any part of you that feels like, I could have fixed this, I could have prevented this, I could have, this is just it's so hard. It's so hard, to, it's so hard to know that I couldn't protect my child from that kind of pain. Right. And it's really hard to live as much as I can. I'm spiritual and believe in divine providence, all that stuff. It's very hard not to feel that maybe it could have been different. Um, and to hold that still with the feeling of like, you are perfect exactly the way you are. Like, you're not a mistake. Like my child, you know, you're, you're perfect. And like, man, I wish that, I, I wish I could have prevented that for you. Like, I really, I really wish I could have. And if I, in some way contributed to it. I'm like, I'm so sorry. There's no sense making of a young child, young person suffering. There's no, there's no making sense of it. And where are you now with it? Um... I feel less connected to the narrative that like I somehow brought it on or screwed up or that I, I, I could have fixed it or prevented it. I'm, I'm less connected to that. Um, I definitely have moments where I feel like it, it could have been different. Um, 
and you know like that certain here and here is again where I feel that tension between what's mine to share but I'll just I, I, I still definitely visit the sense of like a grief around my child having suffered and it's beautiful to witness the resilience the resilience right. is is gorgeous she's in a much better place today <laughs> yes yeah you know well um you know, we spoke earlier about Rabbi Kiva and nuance and there's certain things that are like ideas that are so nuanced like we go a little bit too far off into one direction we're off we go a little bit too far off in the other way and we're off but when you say you, you said it's so hard not to struggle with the idea that I could have done something about it in the past do you connect the fact that she's doing better to the fact that you're doing better mm. as well without going too far yeah. with that idea I feel like she, in many ways, was the catalyst for the growth and healing in our family, you know? And um, so I, f I feel like my work has ripples in the family system, and I feel an enormous amount of gratitude to her. I feel like she was the, the impetus in, in many ways. And so right. and you had her said work that affects me. Her, her healing work touches me. As much as my healing work would touch her. You said she was the impetus for the whole family to change. Um, yeah, in many ways. You know, we... Having to go to just my own therapy, intensive therapy. At some point, my husband going to therapy, going to family therapy, you know, being involved having to look at our behaviors and, and understand our parenting and um, I mean, to come to terms with even just like how my work and my advocacy like was challenging for the family. And Could there be it something? It was a wake-up call. It was, it was a really hard wake-up call in many right. ways. Right, but it did. It did, and too often you see that um, it doesn't. There could be something else also. I'm reading a book. I think it's called um, Didn't Start With You or something like that. Didn't, oh, didn't yeah. Wait, is that with um, is that Oprah? No. Okay, um, doesn't matter. There's another one like like similar. Or or like, like what 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 happened to you? Is that that's Yeah, that's what part? happened yeah, to you. Okay, this it okay. didn't start with you. And it talks about um it shares a story of an individual who started like I think he was 19 years old and he was unable to sleep. Mm. And just suddenly it came on. He was an athlete till then, healthy and I think in some sort of, you know, collegiate sports. And suddenly he wasn't able to, to sleep at 19. And he did everything to try to figure it out. Eventually came across the doctor who wrote this book. And instead of diagnosing, listened to his story. And eventually it came out that his uncle or grandfather was murdered at 19 in a very um, specific way. Not murdered. I'm sorry, not murdered. He, something happened where he got trapped in the cold and died in the cold at 19. And it was an uncle, right? Not a grandpa. It was an uncle who it happened to. And he was kind of still living with that. Yeah. That trauma. Like it still existed him. And 
once the doctor understood that that his trauma had kind of gone into him, then it wasn't, it's not the uncle's fault. He's not here anymore. But the healing, the uncle's no longer here, obviously, in that case, but there are other cases where the person is connected. And the way he explains it is a much more compassionate way. It sounds so awful to say that, um, you know, trauma travels through generations. Like, what would be the usefulness of trauma traveling through Mm. generations? And there actually is a usefulness if there's a society where, um, I don't know, around snakes and snakes are dangerous and someone got hurt by it, then why make this person go through the same thing? Let's just program the DNA that the next person gets this idea. But sometimes something that happens is not a common occurrence and it's not a possible occurrence in this generation. And now you have someone living with a, a programming that's yeah useless, but it's not useless in all, in all scenarios. So some of it, could some of it have been not like your parenting could have been different or your advocacy work could have been different. Just there was something unhealed inside of you that without even knowing it's not a choice without even knowing kind of gets passed on. And then once one family member. Yeah. I mean, breaks down, everyone does this, the healing work and this training that I'm in is looking at the ancestral piece and man, we all carry so much. I remember one of the first things, we have a lot of retreats, like online retreats and in-person retreats. And it's mostly process work and watching other people in process. And, and I remember one of, the thing, one of the first teachings in the first retreats, somebody asked the question about why am I still, like, you know, we, we can be in therapy and figure, why am sure. I still doing that thing or I can't? And he offered something that when he, when he shared it, it's so simple, but I remember I was just crying as I felt so much compassion in it. The still, like why we're still, is because for so long that was intelligent of us. Like that, right. It was not a function of our brokenness. It was a function of our intelligence, you know. I, I've, I have a part of me that kind of is numb and... I've gotten to know my numbness very, very intimately, more and more. And part of the intimacy is understanding the intelligence of my numbness. That for a huge part of my childhood, the only way I could survive all of my intensity and the intensity around me was to to go numb. And when I touch the intelligence of it, wow, like I'm actually like, there's there's brilliance here. Right. Thank there's you. Brilli- yeah, thank you. Exactly. Thank you. And so it's the same thing with the generational trauma. You know, one, things get passed down because that's how our ancestors coped and there's resilience in that coping. And then the question is just like, what what do I invite and I keep in and I say thank you and I still integrate and what am I ready to let go of? Right. What do I say thank you and goodbye? And what do I say yeah. thank you? Yeah. And even, you can but stay. even just being able to let go, I can only let go really until I've like seen and felt the intelligence of it. Yeah. That, that lands. Yeah. One of the things coming up for me is going back to, to your daughters, just how often families miss that with a child. Where, and, and that's why I'd like to hear how you how you made the transition from it's not just 
our family is okay and here's one of our children struggling. But no, there's something something we all have to work on. And I say have to is maybe not the right word. Something, another way of saying it could be something we all could work on. Like any one of us can choose to undo this knot. It, yeah. it lives in all of us. Any one of us can choose to undo it and all of us will be free of that. So I'd say, I mean, I, I get calls you know, because of these conversations from people and it's almost never from the person who needs the help, which is pretty mm. frustrating. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it is always from the person who needs the help, right. I should say. Right. It's almost, the person is almost, about exactly. Else. It's right, almost right, never, right. it's always from the person who needs the help. Right, right, right. Keep right. that in, but yeah. <laughs> you don't have to edit that out. <laughs> it's almost, from the, it's, it's always from the person who needs that help, needs the help, but they're almost always calling about someone else they think needs the help. And the work need is like, no, of, like, of course, this is you. And I'm, th- you know, I, I have many examples of this, but I had a conversation not too long ago with um, parents who were frustrated about a child in, um, in, in uh, drug and alcohol rehab for years over and over and over again. And the way they've completely othered him. And none of our other kids have this problem. It's just him okay, maybe he's like the most sensitive of all and he's picking up on, on something that you all can benefit from. Yeah. And so how did you, how did you make that shift? Because it is hard because it sounds so much, and I know the resistance to it, it sounds so much like blame. And it's not blame, it's such, it's, it sounds like blame. You know what they say, vulnerability, we hate, we hate it in ourselves, but we love seeing it in others. <laughs> That's a good one. <laughs> so it's kind, of, it's kind of the same thing. It's like it sounds like blame only to the person who's mm. who's saying it about themselves, but to anyone else, it sounds so empowering. I think it's like, wow, I can do something about this problem. I don't have to wait till my kid who's been in rehab for ten years and can't, you know, can't figure out how to stop drinking and drugging. I can't. I don't have to wait for them to figure it out in order for this problem to be figured out. Yeah. Like I can do something that everyone can do something about. So what was that? How did you shift into, I need to go into my own healing? Like how did your daughter crack you? Yeah. Oh, there's so many places I can go with this. Because first I want to say it's still a work in progress. Like I don't like to present like, I think on a practical level, the fact that I was going through this, that, that lamplighters happen at the same time. Right. It was like just this portal of having to reexamine my life. And it didn't make sense to look at what my child was going through as an isolated thing. It felt like there's something bigger happening here. Um, and I, I I remember from the school, it's like we had we had this idea of like the canary in the coal mine. That sometimes it's it's the kid that is struggling that's actually pointing to something in the ecosystem. And I think that's a knowing that's been in me. Like it's going back to what we talked about the interconnectedness. I feel like there's some part of me that deeply feels that and knows that, and doesn't feel true to me. Even though I can look at myself and wonder what I could have done maybe it doesn't feel true to me to not feel that we're all connected in the family and that there's something that we all share here yeah it just doesn't feel true right it's not true it's not true it's not true it's not true it's like anything you know it's like 
we're all connected so deeply and the idea that it's it's not like a tumor that you just kind of like cut out right yeah you know and and I mean, yeah. I guess what you're what you're saying is, you said you, there are a lot of different places you could have gone, but the place you did go is that you had the gift of kind of another tragedy, for lack of a better word, right? <laughs> that the school I was that already you're... in the muck. <laughs> well, which is right, which that's. I mean, yeah, because that, that's the like, gift of it. Yeah, I'm convinced. I'm not going to say convinced, but my perspective today, you know, it's okay to have wrong perspectives if it makes us feel better. <laughs> <laughs> But um, my perspective today is that were I not sexually abused as a child, my mm. whole family would be in a very different place today. Yeah, yeah. And I think the reason is is that there was kind of the – this is a – I don't know, like the – I think this is a Jewish idea almost at this point, so much trauma, which is like, oh, it's okay to struggle. It's okay. Life is hard. Why is life hard? Why? Why does it have to be hard? It's not hard for everyone. It's hard for some people. Well, who's it not hard for? Let's learn from them. But no, not the Jewish way. We got to like struggle and wallow in it and, you know, lament every single day about the tragedies and the past and the pain and, and it's normal. Ah, but there's, a, there's something there though. Just kind of interrupt for one second. Yeah. There's a difference between like Everyone struggles, and part of the recipe, the divine design of, of growth is through struggle. That's like one narrative. But it doesn't go there. That, but what, the, what messes it up is the, victim, is the victim consciousness that gets thrown around in there. Like, I, the, the, I'm a victim, therefore. Like, that we're victims, therefore. This is different That's than the victim. That's what I think what this This is attracts. different than the victim, because the victim is almost easier to identify. This is more the martyr than the victim. Ah, Okay. But this still is like, that thread. You don't know how miserable my day yeah, was. Oh, yeah, mine thread. was even worse. Right. 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 But it's different because the victim, like, why do you feel so weak? No, I don't feel weak. I feel powerful. I'm a martyr. I walked through hell to get here. Uh, do you know what I did? You know. Interesting. Or, but you were, go, you were saying about. Or an example, maybe, you know, just someone, a number of people have asked me, isn't, aren't psychedelics, isn't psychedelic therapy a shortcut? Let's say it is. Like, do we have to take the <laughs> long, hard way? Why does it have to be so hard? <laughs> Why does right, this thing have to be? Right. So I think in, in my family and in many other wonderful Jewish families, this idea of suffering as being not only okay, but it's part of the program, and not suffering to eventually get to the other side, suffering for suffering's sake. Life is hard, and don't complain about it. Just this is what it is. I think that existed, and it certainly existed in my family, and there wasn't... It wasn't going to be an average problem that someone was experiencing to say, okay, go check this out. It wasn't going to be... You needed to be something. Oh, you're kind of depressed? Don't give me right. kind of depressed. Right. Don't even give me you thought about... Right? You thought about hurting yourself. I need like the, the right. real deal. And there was something... Mm -hmm. And I'm not, sure, I'm not saying this is for everyone, but there was something in my family around sexual abuse that this felt like enough to everyone. Right. So I was like, oh, he can go to therapy. Like that's right. a, oh, he went he went through something, and I felt like I could, like yeah, oh this was the, enough. The permission was granted. Right, and then well, you know two years later, I'm not talking about the sexual abuse because yeah. it was a the tip. It was a the, nothing yeah, yeah, of the yeah. problem that was really right. going on. Right. It was if in in the scheme of things, it was nothing. 
I'm not minimizing the pain and the, the, the difficulty that came from it, but it was nothing in the scheme of like the actual stuff that was going on for me. And in some ways it was the best thing. Sorry, you were, you had to go through what you went through. Oh, but I don't see, I I don't see it as that. I don't see that that. catalyst in your family. Right. I don't see it as that. I see it as chose it. That you chose it on some level. Yeah. A hundred percent. Ah, interesting. Yeah. Can I sit with that for one second? Cause I'm, that's a lot. That's a big statement. I feel that. I feel that deeply. Yeah. Like someone's going to, right? Yeah. What's better? What's better for us all to live in denial, in misery, and suffering forever, or for one to say, yeah, yeah, I'll take it. What's that for a period of time is a hell of a lot better than this forever. That's not the martyr, right? What? That's not the martyr. No, because I'm not sitting here for, I'm not sitting there. I'm not asking for anything <laughs> yeah, today. No, no, you're from giving it. back. Now it's a, yeah. it's a, it's, it's a it's, story. I, I, now I'm sitting with the curiosity of that pivot of what it takes to, to feel that I chose, I chose this for the sake of the, the betterment, the healing, the uplifting of my, of my family. Like, right. And, and when I say that feels like a huge pivot. From all the messages and all the... Right, and we spoke about nuance before, and and saying this at the wrong time is the most insensitive, callous right, thing to say. Right, 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 of course. Right. Like you invert it, and you've yeah. screwed it all up. Yeah, and only you can say it. Exactly. I, I can't say that for you. It's correct. You know, I I, um, I I haven't spoken that much about my own sexual trauma. It's like not one of the things I've like spoken that much about even though I've spoken about lots of other things but I one thing that I've one struggle that I've had around speaking about it is that victim and survivor both of those hats don't speak to me and and so like I have not yet found the the way in which I can speak to my own trauma in that way. Right. And that's something that we each have to, and that particular thread of my trauma is others, but that particular thread I haven't yet. The closest I've come to is living with, but it's not, it's not something somebody else can tell me. Like I can't tell you how to look at your, at your trauma. Like you have to come to that. You have to like choose that. Right. But I'll, I'll say something else. It wasn't, I, I couldn't say that I chose this and that my mother didn't choose to be the mother who had to look at her child who was, right? right? So it's not like, okay, you guys are all a bunch of blind people and I'm the one who, who raised my hand and we I'll say, I'll take this. it. Yeah, there was a choosing of, I mean, something shifting, right? Something yeah. sh- in the, that collective consciousness, however you want to say it. And it kind of takes... It takes multiple people from multiple angles doing multiple things in order for the the denial to be shattered. Yeah. Which I, I think that's what it is when we talk about godliness and it deeply resonates it's just truth. with me. It's just sense. truth. Yeah. And it deeply resonates with me this this sense and I I hear the nuance of like who gets to decide. But it deeply resonates with me this idea that we choose that we choose our path. And and that we, yeah, it just, it just resonates with me. Right, so f- 
so I'll I'll say this. First of all, I've I felt it, I experienced it, meaning that this feeling, this knowingness, and then in a conversation with Rabbi Yassi Jacobson, I mentioned this idea, and he said, I believe if I remember the conversation correctly, he said, in a Rabbeinu Bachaya on Parshas Kisisa, he says that a soul before entering the world is given the choices, is, yeah. is, 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 it's communicated to the soul all of the suffering and pain and struggles, yeah. mm-hmm. and they don't come unless they opt in. It, the, there's an idea that the Torah that we learn in the womb is this, is, is not like we're sitting and learning like the Parsha, that we're actually learning like what will be the journey of, of your life, like what are the struggles, right? and, and that we say yes. Like we, learn, we learn our Torah. And, and lest one think that the, I may be going too far with this, but I, I can say this, I think, is that I am saying like, oh, I raised my hand for the toughest job. If I'm saying this, and I guess on some level, I'm saying that the guy who hurt me also mm. raised his hand for the job. Yeah. And I think he took the toughest job. He, he, he did his job well. You know, I remember when we were doing um, mic drops. So, you know, it's a lot of people sharing their stories and everything else and sharing overcoming trauma and pain and whatever else. And uh, I went to one guy in my office and I said, do you want to join? We're doing a mic drop. Do you want to join? And he's like, oh, I can't. So I'm like, why not? He's like, it's easy for all you guys to share your story. You're sharing about the people who hurt you. What am I going to talk about? The pre- mm-hmm. people who I hurt? So... Yeah, you know, this training that I'm in, um, Thomas Hubel started in this work in doing uh, work with Holocaust survivors and children or grandchildren of SS officers. That was like how he, 20 years ago, got started in this work. And there are people in my training, there's there's quite a few children of survivors. Whoa, so much trauma there. And there are Germans who are you know, their grandparents were SS officers. And there are, you know, black people whose grandparents were slave owners and slaves. And there's a lot of, you know, white guilt in the room around, col- you know, colonization, mm. all these things. And this, the energy, yeah, of the perpetrator and the victim. And like, that we each hold those identities somewhere inside of us. Like, we've all hurt someone. Right. We've all hurt someone. Right. And we've all been hurt. And I cannot have compassion or forgiveness if I haven't forgiven or have compassion on those parts of myself. That have hurt others. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. hundred percent. Yeah. It's, it's so easy to separate it into, you know, victim and perpetrator. But I often joke that in the 12 steps, right, we get to... Step four is resentments, right? So we name all the way we've been victimized. Step eight and nine deals with amends. So we name all the ways we, we, <laughs> we victimize others. But fortunately, right, there's a reason. Step four comes before step nine. Well, first, first we have to, <laughs> right. first we have to get it all uh, chest. Right. <laughs> we were the victims. And at some point, yeah. yes, that's half the story. Yeah. Right. And obviously some more than others. But yeah, I think we are probably all the villains in someone else's story. Yeah, I still feel like there's people in Lamplighters who probably have some some beef with me or some or just some upset or have things maybe closed or 
and that's hard for me to walk with yeah right i think one time along i may have met someone who was a little bit upset with me but it's been a while (laughs) (laughs) i think you're a relatively power person (laughs) (laughs) no that's funny anyway going into that but yeah it's certainly part of that it's it's the harder part of it's the harder part of the work for sure yeah definitely the harder part of the work to look at the ways that our actions have uh i've heard others mm-hmm. i'm taking accountability what i'm taking accountability yeah and also forgiving and also forgiving ourselves yeah, for also forgiving. for that we've all done some not so cool things yeah. So, how are you? <laughs> <laughs> right. Million dollar question. Are you sure you want to know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. There's a whole story. I'll tell you after a cup of ayahuasca. <laughs> yeah, we should sit together sometime. Amen. We should yeah. with a beautiful silver kiddush cup. Yeah. And a shaman who will teach us orally. Yeah. How this tradition is passed yes, down. Exactly. Take it out of the books. Yeah. Let's do it in real life. Yeah. And a shabbos maybe together. Yeah. Come to our meeting. Maybe. We have like 60 acres upstate. We're building a whole retreat center. Okay, so talk about this. We'll take it into. So it's really beautiful and interesting, and it's a whole other podcast in and of itself of my marriage and my partnership and, and all the ways in which it's deepened and is deepening and, and how clear it is that Yessi and I, my husband and I, really are, are here as healing partners together in this journey. Awesome. And, um, and this innovative spark is not just mine. It's really shared between us. And, um, you know, we've been hosting for years. And we've had so many Shabbos guests and... And our home feels a particular way, and um, and we ha- we're very aligned in our spiritual practice. And he's also very deep in the work. And thank God we bought a place upstate, sixty acres. And and at first it was like, okay, we have a a, a home upstate, you know, we have a, a vacation home. And then it felt like maybe we can you know rent it out. It's big, and we can make some some money or whatever. But then we're like, nah, we want, <laughs> we want to build a community. We want, we want to build a space that people can come into and feel spaciousness and feel deep presence and experience movement and medicine and spirituality and ritual and be in nature and, and sit in, in, in circle and share and be witnessed and witness others and and this is what we're doing. You know, we, we're sort of piggybacking on think on this beautiful chemistry that we have and the work that we're doing already in our in our home in Crown Heights and my teaching and, and my healing work and and the vision is to have have a space. And you know, I mentioned I mentioned this to somebody who grew up in the Chabad community and who's left for a very long time ago. And he said, like, how he, he, he's not religious, but he's thirsty for, a, like, a spiritual space where he could be with other people without judgment. And I think that, the, like, the Jewish community and, and, and the Orthodox community in some ways really needs this. So we're very excited. Um, 
so, and it feels it feels it feels challenging that it's ours and it feels really beautiful that it's ours yours omex said the same thing yeah so right omex omex is the name of the community and the space yeah omex but i'm saying you're like with lamplighters it was yours but it also wasn't yours it was something that was the yeah the so as well. this is exactly this is this is what you know when, when you were talking about choosing so what was happening for me inside was like the sense of like i can see in my life where i am attracting exactly what i need to be working on right now you know like we kind of create the perfect storm to invite the perfect lesson and so starting something new in partnership and my own relationship with power it's like a whole other level of it coming out right now um and it's it feels like a very rich opportunity for like a deeper level of healing around that wound like what does it mean to have something be born of me and yet it's of us right and yet there's this thing that we're creating that's outside of us I guess we'll find out. We'll find out. I do want to say something on the, the choosing because there's a part of it that can sound so um, helpless. Like my life is kind of set. I chose. And then um, I, I chose this struggle and therefore the struggle I will go through is going to happen. And it almost sounds like it's going to happen anyway. And I know it sounds, there's a predetermined versus free choice. I know that's an age-old debate. I'm not looking to go that far into it, but just what I'm saying about myself, I don't carry that idea of I chose the struggle mm -hmm. and also carry this idea of um, I don't sit with choice today. And the way, I under, the way I understand it for myself is that what I chose is not, I didn't cho choose the struggle in exactly the format that it transpired necessarily. I chose, I agreed that I would become this lesson this knowledge you chose the learning i chose the learning yeah that's what, i'm that's, going to yeah. get this lesson i chose this yeah exactly i chose i chose in search of more podcast has a sponsor officially okclarity.com is the place for anyone in the jewish community whether you're from not from religious not religious all that's cool to find a therapist psychiatrist coach nutritionist anyone in the wellness space so this ad is both for those people looking for any of the above. Find the right one. You can go on their website, scroll through their choices. If you don't find someone, they have a concierge service. Reach out to them, describe the issue, and they will help you. I've recommended many people their platform and have only heard good things. If you're a wellness professional, I also recommend joining the directory. They will get you business if you're good at what you do. Okay, Clarity also has an amazing WhatsApp status. Check them out there. We'll post a link, our website, WhatsApp, in our emails, and wherever you're watching this, in the show notes. Check them out and let them know the In Search of More podcast sent you. This learning, you know, like an example that I feel resonance around. I've been doing a lot of ancestral work, and um, my paternal grandmother was like a total mystery for me in many, many ways. And somebody who was betrothed at age nine mm. 
uh, had her first child at age 12, actually wanted to abort my father. And her eldest son found like the potion or the vial that she was going to use and like broke it. And so she, wow. she had no autonomy in that particular way. And autonomy is something that I've like, I'm very, it, it riles me up, like my autonomy. And when I feel like my autonomy is, is, um, threatened or something like if and I, I don't necessarily understand why but when I tune into her and like feel her I understand why and because I feel like the the learning of what it feels to really own my power and own my autonomy and have the opportunity to exercise choice is something that my grandmother wished for and and are you connecting autonomy to not having the ability to um, abort because or, she she wanted to abort and that it was take that choice was taken away from her. Okay, so she's connecting those two things. Yeah, and okay. and because I've wondered, I'm not a woman, but I still have a brain, and I was wondering if <laughs> <laughs> no, I I was wondering if that's like that. It feels to me every time I hear that like I'm being programmed. I'm talking about her. Right, I know. I'm just wondering if there's another. I'm not. Oh, if there's an agenda there? No. Yeah, that's all. No, there's no agenda. I'm, I'm, th <laughs> I'm you know, I'm thinking about her experience and 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 feeling into that and feeling like, you know, the, my my father would have been her her ninth child, but her thirteenth pregnancy, and she likely was very very tired, and maybe felt like the compassionate thing for herself would be to abort i'm not talking how right. but and that but that choice was but, taken right from her. okay no because you easily could have in the story right if um one was just hearing the story not in 2023 they would probably think the fact that she was married at nine showed less autonomy than the fact oh that, that's also part of <laughs> <laughs> right meaning you can still totally embrace the fact that you want to hold on to this autonomy and, where and then you there want you to go. Start. Right, exactly. <laughs> it's like, yeah, yeah. Right. I just I just felt okay, I shouldn't yeah. whatever, I should let you tell your story anyway. But to finish the point, I just feel like that framing of the issue yeah. as woman's choice is I, I just around abortion, I just feel like I'm being programmed when I hear it because I don't feel like I feel like someone can totally think women have choice and not be against and be against this for reasons other than women's choice. I just reject the framing in much the same way that I reject the other, the framing on the other side of pro-life, right? As I reject both framings. Like, let's not frame the question that there's no pro-life and anti-life and there's no pro-choice and anti-choice. Maybe they exist, but that's not the framing of it. Both of trying to program me with their definition. Like, can you, let's frame it along They're these lines. To program exactly. All the time. And that's what yeah, I'm trying to do. I'm trying to, <laughs> exactly. I'm trying to, Deprogram, tell you I'm deprogramming you, but write a new program. My <laughs> point was back to the back to the program. Back to the program. <laughs> yeah, one second. Following this thread of choosing the learning and like that it happens through the mm -hmm. generations and that sometimes we're choosing the learning mm -hmm. of our ancestors and meaning choosing and to power learn power in that. Is it choosing to, to learn the same lesson or choosing to learn what she didn't learn? Um, it's the opportunity 
to heal, work with, be with something that she didn't have that opportunity for. Right. Even even the fact that I have a life in which I can r- rumble with how I exercise power and autonomy. Right, that's crazy. Yeah. The fact that I even get to say I don't have autonomy. Right. And, right. And that's huge. Without sounding like hokey, one of like when you know one of my earlier meditations that she kind of came to me in was she saying to me like I've, I've been waiting for you. Neat. That's pretty neat. Hokey. Yeah, that's neat. It's not hokey. <laughs> You know, but, once you but, go one step outside of anything, exactly. we're already in. Yeah, like, so, yeah. I mean, I've been, yeah, exactly. yeah. It's a little tiny circle. And then like once you believe Wi-Fi exists, <laughs> then you're already outside of it and you can go to ancestors talking. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. So that thought, right. So you're saying that there was a sense that you took on, you said, I'm going to take this learning. I'm going to yeah, take it Yeah, a sense of like, of, of some part of me actively choosing right. to learn and integrate and work through things. Right, and this is where I think the freedom of choice comes in, mm. is that like I opted into this lesson at the beginning of class, right? right? I mean, right, right <laughs> before I came right. in. And I gave the teacher permission to do whatever is necessary until I became the lesson. Until I became, oh, I became the lesson. Yeah. And then I can choose at any moment to learn it or the teacher still has full permission yeah. to keep me in class. You, know, you reminded me of something that um, came to me also one time in the medicine space. Of, I'm in love with, with the process of becoming who I already am. Like we are, we are unfolding who we already are. Like the lessons that that we actually right. know deeply already inside, and and yeah, there's a part of us that's chosen to like live the life that affirms that deep knowing. Live the life that affirms, right? And then once we once we do that, then we kind of are that. Yeah. Someone sees us and look. Yeah. Right. We embody that. But it will become that. Yeah, that's the being, not the doing. Okay. So we've done a lot of doing. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I guess we'll let this be. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for coming out. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.